The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our scripture reading this evening is from Acts 3, 1 to 21. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms to those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by your own power of piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witness. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins might be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, if you're not there already, go ahead and get to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there should be some on the ends of the rows. You can go ahead and grab that. If you have one of those Bibles, it should be page 531. 531. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home, to read it, study it, see who Jesus is and what that means for your life. A great place to start is the book of John, story of of Jesus from there. Acts chapter 3. In case you missed it earlier, like I said, my name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here at Citizens. We're a brand new church plant that exists to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. I do want to point your attention before we pray and dive in tonight to our Lent guide. So this is uh, in the back at the table in the lobby. If you haven't picked one of these up, we would love for you to grab this, uh, take it home with you, one per person. It has Uh, 40 days of devotionals and readings and prayer prompts and scriptures that are going to help us as a church family celebrate uh, and prepare our hearts during the Lent season for Easter. 
preparing to celebrate both the death of Jesus that we celebrate on Good Friday, but also the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And we're going to kick off uh, on Ash Wednesday, next Wednesday, the 17th, but pick this up, grab it. It'll also be available next week in case you forget. Take that home with you. Uh, it has some stuff that we're going to fast from as a church, so you can look forward to that. Things like caffeine, which is my personal one that I'm most excited about, uh, TV, video games, background noise, all the fun stuff. So it's going to be super great. Get a chance to, to say no to ourselves and to say yes to God together. Acts chapter 3, let me pray for us. Let's dive into God's word. God, we are grateful. We're so grateful for the gift of new physical life in our church. And three beautiful, wonderful little babies. And just the way that you have grown our family as a church in that way. God, we're also grateful for new spiritual life. What we're going to see in this story in Acts chapter 3, what you're doing in our midst, in your church, in this city. Would you help us tonight, God? Would you fulfill your promise that your word doesn't return void? As we take a few minutes to look at Acts chapter 3, God, would you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you convict, encourage, confront, whatever you need to do, God? Just to be open to you, open to your leading, open to your spirit. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Love you. Probably sings in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. If you've been around church or grown up in church, perhaps you've heard this quote used, perhaps you've said it yourself. It's often wrongly attributed to a 13th century monk by the name of St. Francis of Assisi. And this quote is often used to help spur Christians on to love and good deeds, right? To, to serve others and by serving others to put the gospel on display so much so that you won't even have to open your mouth. People will know, they'll understand that Jesus loves them and that you love them. It sounds good at face value, but this quote is flawed at its core. On the flip side, particularly in evangelical Christian circles, you might hear some amount of the opposite, Right? The good deeds, acts of caring for the poor, all of that are at best something necessary to do so that you can then tell them about Jesus, or at worst, something to be avoided so that you don't water down the gospel. Again, sounds good at face value, but flawed at its core. So church, let me ask us a question this evening as we get started. Which is it? Good deeds or good news? Do we care for the poor and marginalized in our city, or do we tell them what Jesus has done for them in the gospel? Do we love and serve our neighbor, laying down our lives for their good and their benefit, or do we speak the truth of Christ? What I want to argue today from the scriptures is rather than an either or, I would invite us as a church to take a both and. As we think about what it means to be rooted in Charlotte as a church for the good of our city, I want us to view mission as both gospel in action and gospel in proclamation. A gospel that is both good deeds and good news. That's what we're called to be about as a church. As we think about what it means to take the gospel to our city, to take the gospel rooted here in Charlotte, we must be a church of good news and good deeds. So what we're going to see today in the ministry of Peter and John in Acts chapter 3. So Luke's going to get us back into the story, right? We said last week that in 2, 42 through 47, he took us out, gave us kind of a summary picture of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. And today he's going to jump us back in to the narrative. And so I want to start by talking about good deeds. And then we're going to look at talking about the good news. Acts chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1, talking about good deeds, says this, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple, 
Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So it's the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and Peter and John are heading up to the temple to pray. And there's a man sitting there at one of the gates to the temple called the Beautiful Gate. Would have been this kind of main thoroughfare for people as they were going in and out of worship. So he's sat there by some friends asking for alms, money, charity, gifts, hoping that as these people are going to worship or from worship, that they'll be spurred to want to give. And it says that this man has been lame from birth. Found out later in the story that he's about 40 years old. And so this is 40 years of this man struggling with this illness. In this largely agrarian, physical labor kind of society, that meant he couldn't work. He was reliant on the kindness and sacrifice of others who day in and day out would take him to the temple and he would beg and beg and beg. Sees Peter and John coming and he asks them for help. Verse 4. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. I love Peter's heart here. So he doesn't skirt by, he stops, and he makes eye contact. So because of this man's physical inabilities, he probably would have been looked down upon by the rest of society. He would have been viewed as less than. Some people wrongly would have thought that he was in this situation because of his sin, or his parents' sin, or some generational sin that caused him to have some physical ailment. But Peter stops, and by looking at him in the eyes, he affirms his humanity. He affirms his dignity. He affirms that he is a human made in the image of God. Verse 5, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them. Notice this, not just walking, but walking and leaping and praising God. So these people show up. He's like, do you have anything? And Peter's like, no silver and gold. And you can just imagine this man's like, oh, what? But he's like, I got something better. Boom, walk in the name of Jesus. And he gets up, and walking is no longer good enough. Right? 40 years he's been waiting to walk, and now he's not only walking, but he's leaping. He's celebrating. He's praising God. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the, of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So Peter and John on the way to the temple to pray. They stop what they're doing. They care for this man. He's healed, and he can walk. Now, I just want to say we're not going to get into the specifics of the physical healing and miraculous. We did write a really helpful article on miraculous healing. Does God still heal today? Is this something we should pray for? It's on our website, citizenscharlotte.com. I would really recommend you read that. But we want to talk tonight for our purposes about the big picture significance of what's taking place in this scene. What's the underlying truth that we see? So if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the defining aspects of the life and ministry of Jesus is that he spends his three years of ministry basically doing three things. He preaches the good news of the kingdom, and then he shows that good news by eating with outcasts and doing miraculous works that are often involved in healing. That's it. Preaching, eating, healing. That's kind of the main three things of Jesus's life. And then what you have here in Acts chapter three is the first recorded miracle, an act of healing post-resurrection of Jesus. So this is the first time after Jesus has died, gone to the grave, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of God that you see a physical healing take place. And you're going to see throughout the book of Acts about 14 more healings over the course of the next 25 or 26 chapters. But scholars say if you understand this one, what's happening in Acts chapter 3, then you actually understand all of them. What this miracle specifically shows us, and what we need to know is two things. Number one, this miracle shows us that the Holy Spirit 
has come. All that stuff we talked about in Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is here. And so followers of Jesus now have power as God dwells within them, empowering them and releasing them and sending them for the spread of the gospel. The second thing it shows us, that the kingdom of God is going to continue to go forth and spread around the world to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just in word, but also through the good and gracious work of God done through his people. So having this healing take place so early in the beginning of the church shows us a continuation of this reality about God that has been true from the very beginning. And this is what we have to understand for our time tonight, this truth about God. God's heart has always been to care for the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the needy. God's heart has always been to care for the poor and the outcast, and the marginalized, and the oppressed, and the needy. You can find a group of people that society pushes aside or views as less than. God's heart is always throughout Scripture with them. I was magnified in Jesus' ministry. The people he ate with, nobody else wanted to eat with. People he interacted with, nobody else wanted to interact with. The people that he would let touch him so they would be healed, and nobody else wanted to be even close to them. But now we see here in Acts chapter 3, this is going to continue in the age of the church. This theme throughout the whole Bible that God steps into what is broken. He steps into the lives of those in need with love and grace. And he calls us as his people to reflect him in that. To step into brokenness and join him to see his heart for the needy and to let our hearts be broken for what breaks God's heart. I'm going to give you just a few places, some references as we see throughout Scripture. I invite you to write them down. You can read through them later. This is God's heart all throughout Scripture from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, God's heart for the needy. So we see it in the law, right? The early books of the Old Testament, God is telling his people, the Israelites, how to live, how to function as a nation. And he says this in Deuteronomy 15, 10 and 11. He says, give to the poor freely. Open wide your hand and your heart to your brother in need. Keep moving in the wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, this guidebook for a flourishing life with God. God says in Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on the side where we're insulting God. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. In the prophets, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, God tells his people to learn to do good and seek justice specifically for the fatherless and the widow. In the Gospels, Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of Jesus himself says this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, who? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now here, post the resurrection of Jesus, in the New Testament, we have Acts 3, but we also have James, the brother of Jesus, writing in 127. James 1.27, that religion that is pure and right and honorable before God is to care for the orphan and the widow and to live a godly life. It's five. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. We could literally take the whole sermon. I wanted to, but I got told no by our teaching team. We could just read passage after passage of God's heart for the oppressed and the poor and the needy and the marginalized. Everyone else that society says is no good. God's heart is for them. And this is why this matters. We are called as a church to care for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed in our city, not because it's cool, not because it's hip, not because it's in vogue and it seems like that's what everybody wants to do now, but because it's the heart of God, because it's his heartbeat. 
His heart is for the poor and needy. And we are called as God's people to have hearts shaped and changed and broken for what breaks God's heart, to hate what he hates and to love what he loves. It's always been the heart of God. It always will be the heart of God because the Bible says God doesn't change. He always is the same. And so he has always cared about the needy. He will always care about the needy. And that's why Christians for centuries have been stepping in and caring for those in need. Wherever God has put Christians, they just seem to care. They show up. Back in 300 AD, Roman Emperor Julian, this time of great persecution in the early church, this time where the Romans were literally burning Christians as fast as they could, he says this about Christians. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians. Don't you love that? The superstition of these Christians as what? Their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Can you imagine? They couldn't kill these guys fast enough, and they're still taking care of their poor. They're caring for their own poor. They're caring for these poor. And you can read stories throughout the first 100, 300 or so years of the church, and through war, and through plague, and through persecution, and through suffering, and through hardship, Christians just keep showing up, loving, caring selflessly at great cost to themselves. This can, continues throughout history. So in the 1800s, Right? It was followers of Jesus who fought so hard for the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. Throughout the 1900s, it's been Christian organizations on the front lines of the fight against AIDS and genocide throughout the continent of Africa. I mean, think about so many hospitals in our state, in our nation, right? They're called something, something Baptist, something, something Presbyterian, because they were churches. Those were Christians. Those were the people of God saying, hey, there's a need here. We're going to step out and care for those in need. Now, listen to me. There's much to lament and grieve about what Christians have done wrongly in the name of Jesus over the last 2,000 years. But there's much to lament and grieve. Times where Christians did not put themselves out there and sacrifice and love those in need. Time and time again, yes, absolutely. The picture of our history is not all rosy and clean and don't let that fool you into thinking that there is not so much beauty and good. That Christians for years and years and years have been following the Lord into the brokenness, into the need, sacrificing their own safety, their own control, their own security, their own good for the gospel and the kingdom to advance and for those who bear the image of God, Christian and not, to be cared for, to be loved, to be served. The same should be true here in 2021 for Citizens Church on the east side of Charlotte. Right? Some questions I want us to think about. Some questions I've been asking myself this week, thinking about Acts 3. What would it look like for our church to play a role in this city such that people would say, hey, you know those citizens church folks? I'm not really down with what they teach. Like, if I'm honest, like, I don't really know about this whole Jesus thing, and their sexual ethics seem really backwards, and I don't, I'm not vibing with that whole, like, I'm a sinner in need of a savior concept, but man, is our city better because they're here. Like, what would it look like for people if they looked at our church and said, man, if Citizens Church, regardless of what they're teaching, that, I'll figure that out, but if Citizens Church ceased to exist because they are such a force of good in our city, we would really miss the impact they have. We really miss the good that they do. Charlotte would be worse. We would feel it. Called to be a people of good deeds. This is how we put the gospel on display. We don't just say to folks, yeah, we love you. Hope Jesus takes care of you. I'll pray for you. We actually step in. We pray and we act. We sacrifice at great cost to ourselves. We step in with healing. Maybe not miraculous healings like Peter and John, but following God's heart in bringing restoration to a broken world, right? Bringing healing to systems and structures set up to separate and divide. 
bringing healing to marriages, trauma, family relationships, addictions, bringing healing to hopeless circumstances and situations, bringing healing to whatever is needed in our city. Bringing healing to what is broken around us should be a marker of our church. We should step in. We should be a community that says, hey, we'll help. What do you need? What do you need? You need counseling? We'll help. You need community? You need some friends? We'll help. You need job training? We'll help. You need a bag of groceries? We'll help. You need parenting insights? We'll try our best. You need medical care? We'll help. You need to have questions and doubts about your faith? We'll help. Do you have an addiction that you just can't seem to beat? We'll help. What would it look like for us to take the posture of a church that says, we're not about us? What do you need? We'll help. We're there. Just to make it clear, when I say we, when I say we help, I mean us, right? Not citizens of some organization or something, right? Remember last week, I am they. We, us, stepping in and helping, bringing the gospel to bear on our city with good deeds. That's the first thing. Second, let's talk about the good news. We don't just serve and help, it's a both and. We must also open our mouths and learn how to declare the gospel. Acts chapter 3, let's pick up our story in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Makes sense, right? Here's this guy, 40 years, he's been begging. They're like, whoa, healed. Okay, what's going on? They run after them in this place in the temple called Solomon's portico. Verse 12, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Verse 12 is clear evidence why preach the gospel in a necessary used words doesn't work as an ideal for Christians. Right? Peter doesn't stand off to the side going, all right, John, good work. We healed this guy. Now I really hope they're going to ask us about it. Come on. Ask me. Ask me. I can tell them about Jesus. I hope they ask. No, he steps out and he says, this crowd has gathered and they see what we've done. Now's the opportunity. I'm going to preach. I'm going to get going. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And what we see in Peter's sermon here in chapter three is that it's just a repeat of Acts chapter two. He's literally going to say about the exact same thing, which as a preacher who likes to repeat himself, that is good news to me. Here's what he says. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Same sermon as Acts chapter 2. Jesus is God's son. You guys missed it. You killed him. Here's the good news. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven. Same exact sermon, same exact gospel. Doesn't have to change it. Doesn't have to water it down. Doesn't have to flip it to make it more palatable. He says, no, here's what you have to know. Jesus is God's son. He is who he says he was. You guys killed him. You need to repent. You need to trust in him. I want you to notice he's going to continue to go on. He's going to talk about this healing. And he's going to talk about how this healing points to three specific things. Three things he says the healing points to. He says, first, this healing that we did, it was not our power. It was not our piety. It was not our holiness. It's not us. It's not meant to make us look good. He says, first, the healing points upward to God. The healing points upward to God. Verse 16, and his name, that being Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter says this miracle took place, this healing took place, not so that you would look at us and think we're awesome and think we're great and think we're mighty and powerful and worship us, but rather so that you would worship God. It's by his name, faith in his name. He has made this man well. Miracles throughout the Bible were God's way of saying, this is really me. They were kind of this divine signature that couldn't be forged. 
this good deed, this act of love and mercy and care. God uses the disciples in it, but ultimately it points to him, not to them, which is true of all of the Spirit, right? When the Spirit is working in us, if it's actually the Holy Spirit actually using us, then chances are you're not thinking about the person, you're thinking about what God is doing in the person. This first, the healing points upward to God. Second, the healing points inward to a deeper spiritual need. It says this in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Notice verse 19, the same charge he gave them in Acts chapter 2. Repent, turn, therefore, and turn back. Right? We said repentance is going this way, chasing after our own thing, turning back to God. Notice what would happen if you repent, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter's pointing to a deeper need, right? This man that he heals, him and John heal in Solomon's portico, he has a deep need. He has a deep physical need, absolutely. And they step in and they help and they heal him. But here's the deal, he's 40 years old, right? Chances are he's got 40, 50, maybe 60 more years to live where he can walk. And that's awesome. And that is something to be celebrated, that they stepped in and they cared for him and they took care of a physical need. But here's the deal, he has a deeper need than just his body and physical realities being fixed, is a deeper spiritual need. This man and this crowd that Peter is preaching to, they have more going on than just physical problems. They have a spiritual problem. The reality of the Bible would say that they are stuck and dead in their sin. They're separated from God. They do not have forgiveness. They do not have spiritual new life in Christ. They're not born again, and they're not reconciled to relationship with him. But notice what Peter and John don't do. They don't look at this crowd and go, well, that really stinks. God, I know Jesus. Good. They don't look at the crowd and think, well, you know, I don't really have the right to critique their worldview, so if it works for them, that's, that's good for them, then what's good for me is good for me. They don't look at the crowd and think, you know, I really hope they ask me. I really want to share about Jesus. I hope they ask me the right questions. I hope they ask me why I was so nice to this guy. Now they, with boldness, share the gospel of Christ. Peter says, this is awesome. We healed him, and a crowd's gathered. What better opportunity? Here's Jesus. He's the one he says he was. He is the son of God. He did die for you. Repent, believe, trust in him. You need this. You need your sins to be blotted out. You need a time of refreshing to come from the presence of God. Not just good deeds, good news. Not just good work, a good message. Tim Chester, pastor in his book, Total Church, says it this way. He says, social action without proclamation is like a signpost pointing nowhere. Worse still, it is likely to imply either that salvation is synonymous with socioeconomic betterment but that salvation is through good works like those that I am doing. I love that. Social action without proclamation is like a signpost pointing nowhere. You're loved. Okay, by who? Someone loves you. He created you. Okay, who? Hey, you have a deep need. Okay, what? Good deeds are not enough. There must also be good news. Listen to me, church. You can love people until you're blue in the face, and that is good. Please love, serve, give your life away. That's half of this sermon, but at some point you must open your mouth and declare the good news of Jesus. You just have to. The gospel, by definition, means good news. And what is good news if it's not declared? If it's not said? If it's not spoken? Romans 10, 40, 10 14, Paul says it so clearly. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
We must do a both and we must preach the gospel. We must, at some point, that neighbor we've been serving, at some point, that coworker we've been being really nice to, at some point, that mom in our neighborhood that we've been loving, at some point, that friend from college, at some point, that boss that we've been trying to work really hard to impress, at some point, we actually have to open our mouth and tell them about Jesus. Stop waiting for the questions. Stop waiting for the I hope so's. I hope he asks me. I hope he gets it. I hope he sees. I hope he sees how nice I am. And then he just puts his faith in Jesus. Listen, the gospel is a preached message. Number three, the miracle points to a future restoration. Points forward to a future restoration. 19 through 21. Peter says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter says this miracle, this healing, it points upward to God. It's about him. It points inward to our deeper spiritual need, but it also points forward to future healing in Christ that one day Christ will return at the appointed time, set by him by his Father, and he will make all things new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, no more physical brokenness, no more spiritual brokenness. All who trust in Christ for salvation will dwell forever in the presence of God, in rightness, in flourishing, in shalom, in peace. So as a church, our invitation as image bearers of God is to join God in the work that he is already doing to begin to bring order to chaos to bring redemption and life and hope as we care for the poor and the needy. We do good deeds as a, meaning, as a means of joining God in his restoring work, and then we open our mouths proclaiming ultimate restoration is going to come one day in Christ. That's what we do, good deeds and good news, both and. We care for the poor, we care for the marginalized, we care for the oppressed, we open our mouths and we share the gospel, both and. Think about this in light of uh, the child dedication that we got to do tonight. So this is uh, our first child dedication as a church, my first one as a pastor, my first one as a dad, uh, and my one was the loud one. Uh, but it was really great getting to, to stand up here, uh, and Lindsay and I get to, to dedicate our, our firstborn little Harper girl to the Lord. And I was thinking about it, and if you would ask me, Tim, what's your greatest goal? Like, what's your, what's your, what's your aim in parenting? If I was thinking correctly, I would just respond and say, my greatest desire, my greatest goal in raising this child is that she would know and follow Jesus. That she would love him. That she would give her life away for the gospel. If you ask Lindsay and I and we're thinking correctly, we would say our greatest hope and goal in parenting is that she would love and follow Jesus with her life, that she would be a disciple of him, a follower of him, with everything that that means. But here's the thing, just because that is our greatest goal doesn't mean we also do all the things that parenting and love requires, like feeding her, clothing her, making sure she sleeps sometimes, <laughs> taking care of her needs, sending her to school one day, teaching her how to read and write, sending her off to college in the hopes that she gets an education and a job. Listen, Love requires both. Both that we would tell her about Jesus, what he, has done for her, what he has done for her in the gospel, forgiving her sins, dying on the cross, raising again so she could have new life, that she could die to her old self, die to her sins, and, and walk with him forever. But also love necessitates that we care for her physical needs as well. The same is true for us as a church. Love for our city, love for the people around us necessitates that we both preach the gospel, the greatest news ever, deal with their spiritual need by the power of the Holy Spirit, and also feed and clothe and care for and teach and love and serve. It's a both and. We have to be a both and church. So I just want to lay before you, as we get ready to close, I want to lay before you the needs in our city. 
I love this place. Lindsay and I moved here in May, and I love it. We say all the time, we're so glad God sent us here. We love the city. We love the place that we live, but there's also much need. There's much opportunity. Let me just give you a few. First, there's a significant and growing wealth gap in our city. All right, so out of the 50 largest U.S. cities, Charlotte ranks dead last in upward economic mobility, which means if you're born in any of the 50 largest cities in America, you have the worst chance of working your way up one economic level in Charlotte out of all of the rest. What does it look like for us as the church to engage? What does it look like for us as the church to step into that, to care, to see God's heart is for the poor? How do we emulate his heart? I'll give you another one. 33.5%, 33.5% of people who live on the east side of Charlotte are foreign-born immigrants. If you brought an ad out to the larger city of Charlotte, one in seven. One in seven people who call our city home are immigrants. God's heart is for the refugee, the sojourner, and the stranger. How do we step in and help? How do we engage? East Mech. East Mecklenburg High School, one of the predominant high schools on the east side of Charlotte, the one that Lindsay and I are zoned for. It's the most diverse high school in our entire state. Entire state of North Carolina, most diverse. God's heart is for people of all ethnicities to be unified in the gospel. Yet we know that our city is one rich with tension and strife between races. What does it look like for us to engage this? I'll give you another one. 14% of students in CMS are failing at least one class. 14% pandemic, virtual learning has only made this worse. How do we engage? There are more than 550 children in the foster care system in Mecklenburg County. What does it look like for us to emulate God's heart for the orphan and for the fatherless? That's the physical needs. What about the spiritual needs? We talked about this. We keep saying it pretty much every Sunday. It's not planned. 125,000 people within five miles of this building don't know Jesus is Lord. I don't ever want us to grow tired of hearing that. How do we engage? Statistics show that by 2025, there'll be more de-churched, meaning around church and left, more de-churched in the city of Charlotte than there will be people who attend church. Charlotte's not getting more Christian. How do we engage? Statistically, 20% of people in Charlotte would claim to know and follow Jesus. It means four out of every five people you meet in your neighborhood in your workplace, at your gym, at your grocery store, at a coffee shop, statistically four out of every five people you meet don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord. They're dead in their sins. They're lost without Christ. How do we engage? And in all of this, I'm trying to get us as a church to lift up our eyes and go, what does our city need and what am I going to do about it? Not what is citizens going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? What can we do about it? To look up and go, where has God placed me? And how do I step in for the kingdom of God? I was talking to a friend of mine. He planted a church in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. His name is Joel. About five years ago. And his church just has this kind of robust, even pretty new still, five years is not old for a church, this kind of robust mercy ministry where they're just caring and serving the poor and the needy and the orphan in so many different areas of their city. And I was talking to him and I was like, Joel, how did you get this started, man? Like, how, how did you start this, this beautiful thing so early on as a church? Like, what did you do? Did you cast some crazy vision? And did you do all this stuff as a pastor? What all did you do? And he said, hey, man, to be honest with you, we had a woman about a year into our church plant. She lived in an apartment complex and she had a teaching background and she just noticed that there was a group of kids in this apartment complex that were around when school was in session. She's like, what's going on there? And so she just approached them, got to know them, built a relationship, started tutoring them after school, started helping them learn how to read, learn how to write, all of this kind of stuff. And she did that. And then she asked some people in the church, she said, hey, do you guys want to do this with me? And then there was another couple. God had placed on their heart orphans within their city. 
So they started holding trainings for foster parents, started building out a community of people who could come around foster parents in their city to care for them and to love them and to serve them. They had another guy who was a small business owner. He had a lot of expertise in how to get nonprofits off the ground. And so he started offering his services for free saying, hey, if you want to start a nonprofit in our city, I will do all of your law work and all of your stuff for free so that you can get this thing started and serve our city. And he said it was just little after little after little, one person after one person after one person. He says, I never got up, never cast some big vision for serving our city. I never cast some big thing for do this. We're going to do this together. He said it was one person being broken by the heart of God, stepping out in the power of the Holy Spirit, saying what's around me and what can I do? So we can wait. And certainly, Cole Weiner, our, our deacon of Serve Charlotte, and I will put before you opportunities. We're about to put an opportunity before you at the end of the gathering. And you can wait for those. We're working really hard to try to get ways to serve our city to you. But here's the deal, church. This will never happen the way that God calls us to make it happen unless we're willing to take the initiative. For you to say, who's in my neighborhood? Who are my coworkers? What's my apartment complex? What's the needs in my area? Where has God put me? This is what we've been talking about this whole series. This whole series, if you could sum it up in one thing, we're just saying, hey, look around you. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. God has sent you there. You'd be like, what's Acts about? We have this cool tagline. It says, how the church was planted. Really, how the church was planted was by faithful followers of Jesus saying, what has God put around us and how can we engage? That's the sum. Where has God put you? What are the needs? How can you step in both in word and in deed? Here's the good news for us as we get ready to close and, and take communion together. We as a church are called and invited to step into the brokenness and neediness of our city because Jesus stepped into our neediness and brokenness. We can engage with what is broken around us because Jesus stepped in and became broken for us. And that's what we celebrate every Sunday when we celebrate communion. Right? And we take this cup of juice and we take this little wafer and we remember together, together and celebrate the body and blood of Christ given for us. And we remember that Jesus became broken. He gave himself up so that we could have new life. So we follow the heart of God being changed by him into the brokenness around us. He entered our brokenness. That's the good news of the gospel. We were dead in our sin. We were lost without him. And Jesus came and rescued us when we were not deserving. There's nothing that we could do to make ourselves right with God. Jesus entered that and made us right by his blood. So we celebrate and remember that every Sunday when we take communion. Remember his body and blood. If you're not a Christian, taking communion is one of the only things we would ask you not to participate in in the life of our church, simply because you'd be saying something is true about yourself that's just not yet. But rather than take communion, I invite you to take Christ, to believe that he entered your brokenness, your sin, your guilt, your shame, to reconcile you, forgive you, and make you right with God. Let me pray for us. We're going to take communion and sing and worship King Jesus together. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we, when, when we were your enemy, when we were against you, when we were rebellious, when we didn't want anything to do with you, when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, you sent your son. Not because we loved you, but because you loved us. And you redeemed us, rescued us by faith, by grace. And thank you for sending Jesus to enter our brokenness, to enter our neediness, to give us life. Would you help us as a church be broken for the needs around us? And we don't want to meet here in a little silo of a church building just to ignore what's going on in this community. And we don't want to pull into our driveways and rush into our house ignoring the needs of where you've put us to live, where you've put us to work, where you've put us to play, to shop, to have friendships, 
God, would you help us to be an eyes up church, a church that looks and says, what can I do? I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to wait on anybody else. I'm not going to wait for some crazy sign. I'm just going to step out because you've given me the Holy Spirit by your grace. You've given me power. I can step in here and I can engage and I can use my gifts. God, would you help us to be an initiating church? Would you break our heart to the point that we just can't ignore it anymore. We can't help but to step out and sacrifice at great cost to ourselves for the gospel to go forth in word and in deed. God, would you mold us over the next 5, 10, 15, 50 years? Would you mold us into a church that Charlotte would miss if we were no longer here? That's our heart. That's our longing. God, help us to love you and to love what you love and to hate what you hate more. We need you in all of this, God. Thank you for your spirit. Thanks for Jesus. Prayer license in Jesus' name, amen.